All right. Well, let me just kind of review with you real quick, and then uh, we'll stand and pray together and remember our brother. Um, just saw a picture, thanks, of Isaac <clears throat> in, in bed with all of his gadgets and, and his tongue sticking out. And so we know that he's there. So his humor and, yeah. So um, for the rest of you, just don't do that, okay? And everything will be fine. So it's tough being a part of a family, isn't it? But it's good. <clears throat> All right. Well, um, we are in Matthew 9. I should get there myself. It's in the New Testament. Your pastor should know that. All right. Well, <clears throat> last week in Matthew's narrative, uh, Jesus uh, was, uh, took a diversion from his healing ministry, you might say, to call Matthew, the tax collector, to be one of his disciples. And uh, I think it's important also to note about this whole thing that calling a tax collector was, in that culture, was a very big deal. Uh, I believe that it was also very risky as it had the potential to harm Jesus' reputation and to throw doubt on his identity and his legitimacy, uh, to invite Um, this kind of social outcast, an enemy of the people, a traitor to the nation, you know, into your circle does not happen without real challenges, both outside and inside. Okay, not just with the public perception and then with the religious leadership of Israel. It had, uh, the, it was volatile within his close circle. And there's a reason for that. The, all of his disciples Uh, were probably a little caught off guard by it. But there was one disciple in particular. His his name was was Simon. And Simon was a zealot. And the zealots consisted of a radicalized group of religious patriots. And what they were always doing is they were always looking for an opportunity for insurrection. Uh, These people hated Rome. They hated every Roman with a great passion. But... There was one kind of person that they hated even more, and that was a Jew who was sympathetic to Rome. Who was that? It was Matthew. So within this tight circle of men, you have Matthew and you have Simon. You have Simon who probably, at least early on, thought that Jesus was sympathetic to his cause. But now Jesus has invited a tax collector into the group And so what is going on in Simon's mind? So, you know, you want to talk about a hazardous work environment, uh, team challenge, okay, a potential blow up. Uh, This would not be considered dynamic team building, okay? That's just not what it is. It's, It's just the potential for disaster. But Jesus didn't come to call one kind of people. He came to call all kinds of people. And the history of the church has demonstrated <clears throat> that in Christ, the most unlikely people become the closest of friends. Isn't it true? In fact, Paul says that Jesus, uh, through the gospel, brought down the middle wall of separation, you know, destroying this, this thing of enmity between two groups of people, the Jew and the Gentile. And he does it among all classes of people and cultures. <clears throat> So Jesus, in our story, he doesn't just stop uh, by calling Matthew. 
he actually takes the time to sup with all of his associates, which must have been a great evening for Simon. So, why don't you please stand, and um, we'll continue reading on in God's word. Matthew 9, verses 9 through 13. I was just going to back up to verse 9 for context. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house, this is Matthew's house, by the way, that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you, Lord, for your son who always managed to get to the point. He wasn't here to dilly-dally. He wasn't here to be popular. He was here to save man's soul. Pray that you teach us from the text, Lord, that you bring conviction in our lives, that we would mimic Christ's example, both in what he does and what he preaches. And Lord, also, we want to thank you that this this past week, you've heard us in regard to Isaac. And uh, Lord, I was losing my mind and uh, trying to trust you through it all. And Lord, I'm just so grateful that as the nightmare progressed, that you just were faithful. And um, yeah, Lord, so I just pray that you would continue to minister health to Isaac's body, that you would protect him at this point from pain and from infection. Uh, Lord, from any damage that the stroke may have caused, that he would recover rapidly, miraculously. And, uh, <clears throat> and Lord, I'm, I'm thankful that Isaac is there because I know that as he does get well, that those doctors and nurses are going to get a lot of gospel information. And so I pray that you would prepare their hearts for that and that they would hear and come to faith. Lord, we pray that you'd continue to be with Emily and the kids. Lord, that you would grant them peace and that through all of this, Lord, that they they would know you as even more trustworthy and faithful. So Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead and be seated. Return, if you will, to verse 10. For parents that have uh, kids like mine, uh, the verse is on the screen for you. I have good kids compared to when I was a kid. Yeah, they do well. So So now it happened as Jesus sat at the table. Matthew doesn't exactly tell us that this was Matthew's home. If you go to Mark, he says it was Levi's home. Uh, Matthew and Levi, those are the same people Two names, it was very common in the first century for people to have and even go by two different names. So he's in Matthew's house. It says that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. So it's either go big or go home, right? Go big or go home. Calling Matthew didn't just gain him a faithful disciple. It gave Jesus an audience with all of Matthew's peers 
and other religious and social rejects. Yeah. So Jesus is now sitting in Matthew's home, eating with tax collectors, and then it says this group of people known within that society as sinners. That's those who paid little regard for the religious establishment and their rules. I can sympathize with that. Uh, many commentators, historians have said these people were not necessarily like overtly evil or sinful or unethical. They just, they just did not care to have anything to do with the religious establishment that was filled with hypocrisy. Okay, And um, so they're there. But I think it's also important to note that because of who Matthew was, he was a wealthy tax collector. He was in an, 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 you know, an upper bracket in the social system that his peers were probably all of the same thing. Okay, so this is an upper class of people who are shunned by the greater religious community. But Jesus is there and he has their undivided attention. And this is something that I love about Jesus. I mentioned it last week. Jesus apparently cared nothing for public perception or for the opinion of the leadership, of the religious leadership, when it came to those that he desired to reach. He just didn't care. Okay? There seems to be no cultural boundary uh, that he, he wasn't willing to challenge for the recovery of souls. Okay? But when you see all souls alike as created in the image of God, you will do the same. Okay, you'll look beyond what they've done, you'll look beyond who they are, and you'll see what God can do with them. You'll see the potential in their life when it comes to God's forgiveness. So Jesus reached out to everyone, and he takes to himself whosoever will. Isn't that what we're told in John 3? Whosoever will receive his hand. So when Matthew invited Jesus over to his house for a banquet, Jesus was all over it. He was all over it. So there he was. He's lounging there. He's eating. And as the evening progressed, the house just is more and more filled with Matthew's community. It's great. What an opportunity. Uh, <clears throat> I don't know, what, what was it, four, five years ago, um, a, a young lady had died who was, he, she was raised LDS in the Mormon church, and she'd started coming to here. She heard the gospel. She got saved. And, um, and then she had a battle with cancer and she passed away. And uh, on her deathbed, she told her mother that she wanted me to do the memorial. Well, the mother was still in the LDS church. And so her mother said, well, we're having the memorial at the Mormon church. And so then I get a call from the stake president. And he's concerned about a non-LDS person being invited in and doing the memorial because he said, we don't do that. We've never had a non-LDS person come and speak. And uh, he wanted to know, well, what are you talking about? And I said, I'm going to talk about Sarah's faith from Romans 4.25. And he goes, oh, that's it? And I'm thinking, yeah, that's it. <laughs> and so then um, a, a, another day or so goes by. He calls me again he wants to interview me again to assure that I'm not going to say anything crazy from the pulpit. And I said, I'm just going to uh, teach what Romans 4.25 says, what it is that Sarah believed. I just want to honor her faith and all of that. And, um, but the, the deal was that for me was I had an opportunity to go to an LDS church and preach the gospel. And I thought, there is no way 
I'm passing that up. So I got to go to the bishop's lectern and I got to preach the gospel uh, to all of these, these LDS families. And isn't that sweet? Yeah, I know some people would have a problem with that, but it's like, man, to have the attention of unbelievers, I don't care where it's at. And uh, some people had come to me and, and said some stuff, not like, but they were like, are you sure? And I was like, look, in Ephesus, Paul preached in the pagan school of Tyrannus. It's like every day. So how could I pass this up? So I'm sure Jesus had a lot of naysayers. Uh, of course, the Pharisees, as we'll talk about, um, but the opportunity to have an audience with people that do not believe, uh, we should take that opportunity. Amen? Yeah. Of course, it wasn't what everybody wanted. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Yeah. Now, it seems more practical that this interaction between them, uh, the Pharisees and Jesus' disciples, took place outside uh, after the banquet, okay, for a couple of reasons. It's very unlikely that these Pharisees went into Matthew's house, okay, uh, to speak with Jesus' disciples, lest they be defiled by their association with these people that they detested so badly. Okay, they're not just uh, religious, they're uppity, okay, they're self-righteous and and all that. They wouldn't dare associate with such filth in their mind. And also, I doubt that they would present this kind of snarky, obnoxious question in front of all of the tax collectors and sinners. Okay, they would, they would be outnumbered, and uh, it would just not be an appropriate setting. I don't know that they would even have the courage to do something like that. So after dinner, as the disciples were coming out, seems to be the most opportune time. And seeing that they weren't brave enough at this point to confront Jesus themselves, they talked to the disciples, but then it it appears that they didn't know that Jesus was in range to hear it, because they wanted to talk to them, not to him, okay? So the question here is more of a jab, and it's both a jab to Jesus and to the disciples. It was meant to undermine Jesus and cause the disciples to doubt his moral integrity, and his position as a teacher. You know, something like, you know, how could Jesus be anybody at all if he's willing to eat with these kinds of people? And why would you follow such a man? Clearly, you see the folly in this. He's not who you think he is, right? And there's another cultural issue that is at play here. You know, sitting in someone's home and sharing a meal with them was not a casual thing in the Middle East, and neither was it insignificant, okay? It communicated friendship, acceptance. It, it really demonstrated mutual embrace, mutual embrace. So these, the Pharisees then interpreted this really as an unacceptable breach of all that is good and proper. And I believe they did that for the same reasons that many Christians do it today, okay? It's because they could not distinguish between two realities. The same confusion occurs with us. Please pay attention. Not that you weren't. I'm making lots of eye contact here. James 4.4 says, Friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. We have a tendency to confuse the unbelieving people in the world with the world itself. And therefore, we think that being friends with an unbeliever is the same as being friends with the world. And therefore, some of us 
Of course, not in this church. We're angels. We sneer at people who make friends with unbelievers. And then also we avoid those kinds of friendships. But you guys, the unbeliever is not to be confused with the world. Otherwise, Jesus was friends with the world. Who's willing to accuse him of that? Oh, good. That's, that's, we're doing well this morning. Okay? Yeah. We'd have to say that he's an enemy of God, similar to what the Pharisees are thinking. But when the scriptures refer to the world in this way, even as James meant it, it speaks of the current moral order of this world and that which governs and influences it, all of which is militantly opposed to the kingdom of God. You follow? And it's important to note that this moral order and what influences it, it's not a spiritual entity, but a spiritual one. And so we must be careful to distinguish this government and its moral order from the people in it, or we'll repeat the sins of the Pharisees, okay? Listen to what Paul says about this world and how he distinguishes the people from it. He says, and you, he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. A moral order governed and operated by a spirit. Who's that spirit? The prince of the power of the air? He's also called the god of this age, okay? The whole world is under the sway, John says, of the wicked one, all right? So that's Satan himself. Paul goes on, he says, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, unbelievers walk according to this world's moral order under its prince, but these unbelievers are not to be confused with the world itself. They're to be viewed by us as those who can be rescued from the grips of the world by the gospel, just as you were just as Paul says in that passage. Okay, we once walked according to the course of this world, but God, he rescued us. He transferred us from the power of darkness to the kingdom of Christ. So listen, sitting with sinners and eating with them, not eating them, of course, unless they're tasty, but sitting with sinners and eating with them is not to be confused with being friends with the world, okay? But when done properly, Like Jesus, it's a rescue mission. Now, of course, there's dangers involved with being friends with unbelievers, especially for our children, okay? To be honest, I would never let my children be friends with unbelievers that's unsupervised because I don't believe that children are outside of their developmental stage until they leave my home and they're walking with Christ all by themselves, okay? Is that too much for you? It's too bad, okay? Because that's the way I roll, all right? Until I release them, and they're clearly in the hands of Christ, trusting him, obeying him, that's, that's just the way life goes, okay? If our friendship with an unbeliever is motivated by influencing them with the gospel, 
and our friendship doesn't involve our compromise of the gospel, the mission is pure. Amen? But if our friendship is motivated by any other thing than winning them to Christ, look, our motive is wrong. It really is. You know, Jesus and the apostles didn't, you know, hang out with unbelievers because they had things in common with them. They were trying to save people. They couldn't ignore the fact that they were condemned before God and, and then you know, call them a friend and then say nothing about their mortality and eternity. I mean, love communicates danger to a loved one, does it not? And how would your so-called friend appreciate it if they went from here to there, realizing that you as their friend never said anything? So to be gospel-minded, to, to have a Christian mindset, is to see people in need of Christ. So they didn't just hang out with people. People say, well, when have I gone too far in a relationship? And I say, whenever you cease to be the spiritual moral influencer in the relationship, as soon as you're no longer influencing them toward the cross, there's a problem. There's a problem. You're flirting with befriending the world. But make sure you understand this. Friendship with an unbeliever is not to be confused with being a friend of the world. I encourage especially mature believers to make friends with unbelievers with the motive of preaching the gospel to them, influencing them to Calvary, right? It's hard to say Calvary sometimes because I think people might think I'm trying to get people in our church because it's called Calvary Chapel. I mean, you know, that hill where Jesus was crucified for the sins of the world. That's what I mean, yeah. So back to the question of the Pharisees, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? You know, theologically, Jesus could have said, If I don't eat with sinners, I won't have anyone to eat with. I'll have to sup alone, all right? But Jesus wasn't as snarky as I would have liked to have been. So he answers the question. He ignores the jab, but he sticks to the real issue. It says, when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. This response is so perfect. You know, Jesus doesn't deny, you know, the spiritual malady of the tax collectors and sinners, but he he implies that they are the sick ones that need a doctor, doesn't he? But they're not the only ones that have a malady. You know, these Pharisees who knew the scriptures so well were guilty of not living according to what the scriptures taught. So Jesus tells them, go and learn, not what the scriptures say, but what the scriptures mean by what they say. Meaning is always the ultimate issue. So don't miss what Jesus did here. He just told a group of insecure, self-righteous Bible scholars to go and learn their own bread and butter. If they weren't offended before this, they certainly are now. You remember earlier he accused them of having evil thoughts, and now he accused them of being ignorant and expose their hypocrisy. So Jesus told them to go and learn what is meant in Hosea 6.6. That's the quotation there in the text. That he desires mercy and not sacrifice. Why would he want them to learn that? Because these boys have a mercy-free ministry, okay? They show no mercy. They They weren't obeying the scriptures, the very scriptures they're telling everyone else to obey. What do we call that? What? You can say it, say it proudly. It's hypocrisy. Say it so your kids can hear it. (laughs) It's hypocrisy. 
Okay, so what's the deal with mercy and sacrifice? Sacrifice deals with the ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses, but mercy deals with the social aspects that is showing kindness to people in need, whether it's physical or spiritual need. Now, God actually desires both, but when people fail to exercise mercy, God doesn't regard their sacrifices. Sacrifice is worthless when mercy is withheld. You see, the Pharisees were really good at doing all that was required in regard to the sacrificial and the ceremonial aspects of the law. They were faithful to pay all of their various tithes, okay? And they would offer all the appropriate sacrifices required in the law, but they showed no mercy to the people they differed with or to the people that needed it most. And you know that they spied on Jesus for three and a half years as he demonstrated mercy, he showed mercy, he taught mercy, and yet they failed to repent. They failed to repent. And so we find Jesus in Matthew 23, he's come to a place where he's done with the Pharisees. Let me show you. This is just a hint that he's done. It's an entire chapter of this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. All of the things that were easy to do, counting out your tithe and offering appropriate sacrifice at the right time, but anything that was of any significance to their fellow man, justice, mercy, the weight here matters, they just didn't do. James 2.13 says that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. And so we find that just as in Hosea, Jesus is pronouncing judgment on the religious leaders for neglecting what is most important to God's heart, mercy. But back in chapter nine, Jesus was still trying to reach them. So he concludes by saying, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now back in verse 12, the sick referred to the tax collectors and sinners, but the unrighteous here in verse 13, who does it refer to? the Pharisees, who had failed to show mercy and therefore needed to repent. Jesus' response should be understood this way. Yes, the tax collectors, the sinners, they're immoral. That's true. But before you, you know, pat yourself on the back, you are no less guilty than they are, if not more so. Why? Because you're not obeying the scriptures while telling everybody else they need to. You're demanding and not doing. Now, this is so great because... You know, Jesus is no respecter of persons, is he? If you're a sinner, what are you going to get from Jesus? Repent. Repent. He calls you out. Both the unbelieving community and the self-righteous community. They all need a physician. Both need to repent. Both need forgiveness. So I like it. Jesus just levels the playing field. Everyone's guilty before God. They all have the exact same need. They need forgiveness through Christ. Now this whole thing about all different people needing forgiveness, because I think that we have a tendency, because you guys are self-righteous, right? You're just like me. I've had conversations with all of you. But we have this idea that some people are more sinful than us. That we're not just right, we're actually righteous. We're better than they are. And I mean, we're a fairly conservative little community in here. And there's another community that we don't appreciate so much. We're not going to talk about who they are. But anyway, when I was in Montana, 
uh, I assure you, I was performing a wedding. It was absolutely necessary to be there. I spoke with a resident in a small town at a gas station. And as we talked, I made the mistake of saying that I was from Washington State. At that moment, the man went from friendly, delightful, to abrasive as he communicated to his wife's embarrassment with foul language, his disdain for Washington, his hatred for Democrats, and our governor. So I quickly said, well, I'm actually from Wyoming. (laughs) (laughs) Just got to get out from under this condemnation. (laughs) But clearly, a political conservative who believed himself to be not just right, but better than another community who he disagreed with. But what became evident to me in this conversation was that he needed Christ's forgiveness as much as those that he hated. He was self-righteous, he was profane, hating others created in the image of God. He was a Republican, and he needed Jesus? What kind of a world do we live in? I'm from Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine what his response would have been if I said I was from California. So. You guys, the gospel levels the playing field. It condemns everybody. It condemns everybody. And I believe that's how the gospel should begin, by the way, is the bad news. Telling people why they need the gospel. Because they're sinful. So another important issue comes out at this point. Jesus said that he did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. You know, he didn't come to call the righteous because he didn't believe in fictitious creatures. They just don't exist, okay? Other than Jesus, there's none righteous, no, not even one, Romans 3.10. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. So Jesus didn't come to call a population that didn't exist. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance, and there's no shortage of that, not even in this room, right? Yeah. Earlier in Matthew, before Jesus was born, the angel told Joseph that the baby was to be named Jesus because he will what? He'll save his people from their sins. Now, Jesus, which comes from the Hebrew, Yeshua, means Jehovah saves or is salvation. So Jesus' mission was actually communicated in his name. He was the Savior who came to save. But here, Jesus says, I came to call sinners to repentance. So what is repentance and how does a sinner's repentance fit with Jesus' mission to save? The Greek word, which I'm not sure how to pronounce, is a compound word that means to change the mind. It means to change the mind, to change how one thinks or understands something. In in the biblical context of gospel preaching, the word means to change the way one thinks about God and the way one thinks about their own personal sin. Repentance is coming to understand themselves in light of God's judgment, that apart from his forgiveness, they're, they're done. They're condemned. And if someone were to repent, As Jesus meant, they would have recognized not that God is real, but that God is right. That his evaluation of them as sinful is true. And their need of him and what he offers is absolutely necessary. They would come to terms with their sinfulness and the danger that they're in because of their sin. So it's important to to note that Jesus wasn't simply calling sinners to stop sinning. He was calling them to recognize the sinfulness of sin the danger they're in because of sin, to disapprove of their own sin, to fall under conviction so they would be ashamed of their own sin, so that they would desire forgiveness. He was calling sinners to change their minds in regard to him, that he alone can save them from the penalty, the guilt, 
and the tyranny of sin. You guys ever experience that sin is tyrannical? It's terrible. He even wants these Pharisees to repent. And repentance is absolutely essential because without repentance, no one can be saved. Not a soul will be saved without repentance. Jesus said this. He says, I tell you no. We love to be told no. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's troubling to me that so many in the church today do not want to talk about sin and repentance when Jesus taught that no one, no one gets saved without repentance. He said, without it, you will all likewise perish. So we asked the question earlier, what is repentance and how does a sinner's repentance fit with Jesus's mission to save? Well, because repentance is absolutely necessary for salvation, Jesus came preaching repentance. It's fascinating when you look at all of the sermons of Jesus and the apostles, John the Baptist, the first recorded word of Jesus after his ministry began, do you know what that word was? Repentance. The first recorded word out of John the Baptist's mouth when his ministry began, guess what that word was? You guys are good. After Peter preached his first sermon in Acts chapter two, the crowd said, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent. The call to repentance is either implied or it's explicitly stated in every sermon in the book of Acts, every single one. Jesus said, I came to call sinners to repentance. And the only reasonable conclusion from all of this is that the call to repentance is also our commission. Yeah. There's something more that I want you to consider in this whole thing about repentance from what Paul said. He was testifying before King Agrippa. And like Jesus, he just wasn't afraid to say it. He says, therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, where he's converted, and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea, and then to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and do works befitting or worthy or consistent with repentance. Paul says, I wasn't disobedient to the heavenly vision. Speaking of of when Christ confronted, converted, and commissioned Paul on the road to Damascus. And what was Paul not disobedient to do? To preach repentance. So the implication is that if Paul, he would have been disobedient to Christ himself if he failed to preach repentance. But that's only one thing I wanted you to notice. I want you to consider the order of things in Paul's preaching. Paul preached that people should, it's right there on the screen, repent, turn to God, and then do works befitting or consistent with, nobody uses the word befitting. I have never used that word unless I'm reading that text. How many of you guys have said befitting before? Not, not reading the text, just befitting. You said to your children, it's not befitting. <laughs> it's translators sometimes just, they're not befitting. So use some language that people use. Consistent. So in the text, there's, there's first repentance, where we must change the way we think about Christ and our sin and our need for him. You know, God, you're right. I'm sinful and I'm gonna perish without your forgiveness. I I deserve your judgment. Then we must turn to God. Of course, that's done in the heart through faith because God is not in one direction or another for us to turn to. We must turn to him in faith, faith that he will save us by means of Christ's atoning death and his resurrection that he suffered in my place for my sins. And then in victory, he rose again to life. 
And it's by turning to him in faith that we're saved by grace. That's what that means in the text, turning to him. We find that exact terminology referring to salvation in Acts chapter 9, verse 14, Acts 15, 19, Luke 1, 16, 2 Corinthians 3, 16. You guys are convinced. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, turning to God refers to salvation. But listen, it's and then, after we've turned our hearts toward God in faith and we've experienced salvation, we are then commanded to do works consistent with repentance. That is, our lives by our conduct should demonstrate true repentance. This is important. We're called to change our mind, and once we're saved, we're called to change our conduct. We said last week that we cannot demand people to get it together before they come to Christ. I asked, how well did that go for you? Yeah. We call them to repentance in regard to their sin, so they will turn to Christ for salvation. And once they're saved, and only then does it make sense to place moral and spiritual demands, the demands of Christ upon them. Jesus came to call sinners to repentance so they would turn to him and be saved. He didn't come to call people to shape up. He knew better. You know, he wasn't a moralist. He's the savior. You know, the problem with moralism is it makes people feel like there's nothing wrong with them. And then it's even more difficult to convince them that they need a savior. Now, I, I, I think moral reform is good. I think good moral policy uh, for the benefit of the commonwealth is good. I believe all of that stuff. But when people are, are super moral and ethical, it's really difficult to convince them that they're still sinful, that they're still rebellious, and they still need Christ and his forgiveness. Okay. Christ didn't come to call people to shape up. He's not a moralist. He's the savior. A righteous life follows salvation as we walk with Christ in faithful obedience. And just as Christ came to save or call sinners to repentance, you guys, we've been commissioned to do the same. Let's be faithful to our commission. Amen. Go ahead and stand up. I'll get you out of here. It's a little early. Please don't interrupt the Sunday school classes until they're done. Okay. If you have questions about anything I've said, uh, I would love to speak with you. If you have any prayer needs, love to pray with you. And I just want to encourage you guys to continue to pray for Isaac, and I'll give reports as they come in. And uh, so let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, well, to be honest, we'd really like to just do everything our own way. But what we have before us in the text is we have your example, we have your teaching, we have your own stated purpose for coming. And then, Lord, you transferred that commission to us to humbly advance in the world. Of course, it's different. You were sinless telling sinners to repent, but we're sinful telling sinners to repent. So help us to be humble, and as Paul says, help us to remember where we've come from. We too were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So Lord, help us to advance the gospel in this world that is is perishing without you. Help us to be bold to preach repentance in the gospel of Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.